Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Benjamin Phillips, and I'm joined by Dr. Neil Bernstein, Professor of Classics and Religious Studies uh, at Ohio University. How are you, Dr. Bernstein? Doing well, thanks, and thanks for this opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. So, Dr. Bernstein, we're here today to discuss your translation of the complete works of Claudian with Rutledge in their later Latin poetry series. Uh, Tell us how you enjoyed this project and how you got onto it. So uh, this project actually started during the pandemic. Mm. Uh, Our library system shut down and it was very difficult to obtain materials. And as people may remember, we also had a lot of time in Dublin. So um, I happened to have, by some good fortune, a series of editions and translations of Claudian already on my shelf. And I had meant, after doing some collaborative translations, to do one of my own and to do it in verse. Mm. And so that's part of what brought me to my, the project. The other part was the very kind invitation of the later Latin poetry series and its editor, Joe Pucci. So, Dr. Bernstein, uh, you mentioned your previous translations, which were on uh, Silius Italicus, and you've done a lot of scholarship in that area. Tell us how you got uh, into this time period, a few hundred years later. So... Um, my collaborator, Antony Agasakis, and I uh, translated Silius Italicus's poem from the end of the first century AD. Mm-hmm. And you're right, Claudian's a bit of a jump at the end of the fourth, beginning of the fifth century AD. But he's working in exactly the same tradition. And in fact, the more you know about that earlier tradition, the more you appreciate the adaptations and uh, riffs that he's playing on his favorite Latin authors, Virgil, Ovid, Statius, and occasionally Silius. So although it was a very different context, Rome is in a very different, the Roman Empire is in a very different state at the end of the fourth, beginning of the fifth century AD than it is in the first, it was in many ways uh, a very familiar kind of approach to discussing both historical and mythological events in, in Latin poetry. So speaking of Silius uh, and those earlier poets, we had on the show a couple weeks ago Dr. Gervais and uh, Shaughnessy discussing their recent work on Lucan and the Flavian poets and their recent popularity or, or redemption that we were warned not to just put immediately to the poets themselves, but other factors have uh, caused this sort of renaissance. What's brought Claudian back to the fore? Well, Claudian's been the beneficiary of a... Uh, a change across the entire field of interest in later antiquity. Mm-hmm. In other words, for the longest time, we focus on the period from about the first century BC to the first century AD. That's still the central period of our focus when we're studying the Roman Empire. And that's when the Roman Empire is strong and capable, adding new territory, secure from foreign invasion, and so on and so forth. Skip 300 years or so. We have an empire that's been through a severe crisis in the third century and is constantly being attacked by peoples from outside its borders and furthermore has internal division. There's after um, one of the people we'll talk about in Claudian, the emperor Theodosius, after he passes away in 395, the empire is divided between his two sons, Honorius and Arcadius. Claudian works at the Western Western Empire's imperial court at Milan for the young emperor Honorius and his regent Silico. And one of the major 
um, um, themes for his poetry is praise of that region, Stilicho, in a form that we call panegyric. So that brings us to a great point, uh, which is panegyric is not something we tend to think of with great poetry. Uh, before before reading Claudian, my only experience with panegyric was Sidonius Apollinaris and a very poor old Loeb translation from the 1930s. Uh, but this is something different. So so tell us, um, why, why should we read panegyric? What can we get from it uh, today? Well, this is one reason why we do pay attention to Claudian, is he took, as you say, a form that's difficult to do well. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to write convincingly about how amazing your boss is. <laughs> but we have interest in it today, just in a different form. We listen to commercials telling us how great a particular product or service or individual is, and they too are in panegyric mode, only not in um, poetic form usually. Right. Having said that, even if your task is to praise your boss, you can add creative ideas and a creative narrative. I want to give as an example a passage from a poem, a long poem, over a thousand lines that Claudian wrote in praise of the regent Stilicho. In the year 400, Stilicho was the consul of the western part of the Roman Empire. And Claudian, um, in just about the uh, middle of the poem, gets all mystical on us, tells us that the gods, uh, that the sun god has gone to the cave of time. And I'm going to start reading uh, Claudian's account of this mystical cave. Far off, there is an unknown cave, which our minds cannot penetrate it. The gods hardly approach it. The year's disheveled mother, the cave of boundless time, supplies moments from her massive breast and calls them back. A serpent whose gentle divinity consumes all things embraces the cave. Its scales continually flourish and its mouth devours its own tail as it silently glides, retracing its own beginning. Ancient nature, nobility in her face, sits as guardian before the entrance doors, and flying souls hang from each one of her limbs. A venerable old man writes laws that endure forever. He apportions measures to the stars and paths and stable periods. All things live and die by these fixed laws. As the sun stopped on this cave's great threshold, powerful Mother Nature came running up, and the old man bent his white head toward the brilliant rays. Then of its own accord, the adamant opened and released the doors. The innermost sanctuary's depths lay open. Time's seat became visible, as did its secrets. The world's ages dwelled here, each in its fixed place, different metals marking their appearances. Here clustered the bronze centuries, iron ones stood stiffly over there, and there shone silver ages. The shining years stood in an outstanding part of the palace, a golden band hard to encounter on earth. The sun chose a remarkable one, precious metal covering its body, to assign to Stilicho. Next he ordered the other years to follow behind and instructed them as they went 
Here is the consul, for whom we delayed the better metals' ages. Go forth, you years that mortals learn, yearn for. Lead out the virtues, flourish more in men's minds, rejoicing in wine, fruitful in grain. So, Claudian takes a really old idea, the idea that once upon a time the world had a golden age, and now we've fallen and live in a terrible time. But if we just find the right person, that person might restore the golden age. And he takes, as I said, a creative approach to it. Instead of just saying, Stilicho will restore the golden age, he invents from a series of pre-existing tradition, but it's his own invention, this composite myth of the cave of time, mm. with its golden years waiting for the sun to assign to the various years of the calendar. That really is a beautiful selection, uh, and well translated too, if I may say. Um, I'm waiting on political eyes to get to that level, um, but I doubt we'll see that anytime soon. So Alan Cameron back in the 70s called Claudian uh, the official court propagandist of Stilicho, and then later like walked back the official part especially. What What is the role of these panegyrics? How are they operating in their climate? So they serve many functions, um, some of which we're grateful for in that they put a tremendous spin on events, but they do preserve for us events that we would not otherwise know about. Mm -hmm. So Claudian is a necessary source for historians of this period, although he would have been amazed to find himself being used in this way. Mm -hmm. Second, uh, remember this is a society that doesn't have newspapers, doesn't have radio, doesn't have internet. Um, communication of information is part of what panegyric does. In other words, the poet recites a panegyric at court in front of the courtiers, mm -hmm. but then other people go and take these columns and perform them, presumably, in their own houses in mm -hmm. front of other aristocratic audiences. It's one way for the court to get its message out, similar to the way it gets messages out through sponsoring shows and games, disseminating coinage, making public appearances through um, a ritual called the Adventus, the arrival of the emperor at a new city. So when the emperor, or in this case his regent, wants a kind of PR blitz, mm -hmm. hiring a poet is actually cheaper than a lot of all those other um, methods of disseminating information and disseminating ideology that I mentioned a minute ago. All right. So Claudian, of course, very useful in, in bringing unity and presenting a, a common image to the public. But I believe the flip side of panegyric is invective, isn't it? And we know about this, again, from our modern advertising culture. Part of advertising is to say, well, the competitors are no good. Mm. That's why you should pay attention to whatever it is we're focusing on. Panegyric has a flip side, invective. Instead of praising your boss, you dish dirt on his enemies. The year before Stilicho was consul in the West, a man named Eutropius was consul in the Eastern Empire, and the Eastern Empire and Western Empire were at odds at this time. It was in Claudian and Stilicho's interest to write a poem which we now call the Invective, in other words, the poem of hatred against Eutropius. And I'll read a bit of the opening. The world shouldn't wonder any longer at half-animal children 
that terrify their mothers. Wolves howling at night in the middle of the city, or cattle speaking to their astonished herdsmen. Dire showers of stones, bloody clouds reddening a menacing sky, gore polluting wells, moons colliding in the sky or double suns, all these monstrous portents yield to a eunuch consul. What sacrifice will placate the gods' vast anger? Whose neck should we cut to appease them at the dire altars? Sprinkle the consul's blood on the fasces, let the prodigy himself make atonement. Make Eutropius's neck expiate whatever this omen says fate's preparing. Is this how you govern all our affairs, Fortune? What kind of vicious joke is this? How crazy will you get with human affairs? If you're happy that a criminal slave defiles the consul's curule chair, then let a shackled consul mount it. Break open the slave workhouses and dress them up as consuls. Give us anyone so long as he's a man. Okay, this is the other thing that fascinates people about the Roman Empire, is that for a traditional hierarchical society, it yet had some opportunities for social mobility. We are fascinated by people like Eutropius, born in slavery, castrated at birth, and yet able to rise to the highest office you could get to without being emperor, i.e. the consulship. Claudian is having none of that. He just wants his audience to know the guy was a slave, he was castrated at birth, he is therefore unfit to be consul. This is what invective does. It seizes on anything you can blame about a person, or makes it up if, you, if, 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 if that person actually doesn't have things you can blame, and spins it, in this case, into hundreds of lines, mm. telling you how awful Eutropius was, Aren't you glad you have Stilicho to save you? Wow. Um, Claudian and Ammianus should get together sometime, talk about eunuchs. Um, but it's, it's not all politics for Claudian. Um, one of both of our favorite poems in this uh, opus is um, The Old Man of Verona. Tell us about this one. So Claudian's a poet first and foremost. He pays the bills writing panegyric, but one of the ways he brings himself to his patron's attention is just by writing great poems on ordinary subjects and mythological subjects. So, The Old Man of Verona, well, that's a title we gave to it. Uh, the original poems don't have any titles. They're probably just known by their first lines. But it's a short poem describing an ideal. Rather than this world of constant upheaval, rather than this world of constant moving around, and here's probably a good moment to discuss Claudian's uh, migration he tells us he was born in Egypt, probably in Alexandria. His first language in that case would have been Greek. And he tells us when he came to Italy, he stopped writing in Greek and started writing in Latin. And he came ultimately to the court of Milan. So there may be some wistfulness for people who don't have to wander the world mm -hmm. in this short poem. He's a fortunate man who has passed his life in his ancestral fields the same whom saw him as boy and old man. Leaning on his stick, he walks over the same sand where he once crawled and numbers his long years in a single house. Fortune didn't drag him through a variety of upheavals, and he wasn't a stranger on the move, drinking from strange rivers. He didn't fear the ocean as a merchant, nor the war trumpet as a soldier, 
nor did he endure the noisy forum's lawsuits. He was untrained in other matters, unaware of the nearby town, but enjoyed his freer view of the sky. The same fields see the sun rise and set, and the peasant measures the day by his own son's path. He remembers the mighty oak when it was a little acorn, and sees that the grove has grown old along with him. Yet his strength remains unconquered, and the third generation sees a muscular grandfather with strong arms. Let others wander and explore the far-off Caucasus. They have more of a journey, but he has more of a life. That, that is lovely. Um, we, we mentioned Alan Cameron earlier. He also claimed once that Claudian has the most polished hexameters uh, in, in the poetry. Is that something you found to be the case? And what was it like translating him? So um, we have the benefit of hindsight. Mm-hmm. And we call Claudian the last of the great classical poets. Because less than a century after his death, the Western Roman Empire will fall. Mm-hmm. We conventionally date the fall of the Western Roman Empire to 476, about 75 years after, Cla- after we stop hearing from Claudian. And so, yes, after that, you mentioned Sidonius, um, Latin poetry becomes a different thing. Not necessarily a better or worse thing. People are still writing it for the same reasons and becoming famous in their own day for their work. But Claudian is the last exponent of this great classical tradition as uh, um, and, as you say, writing at a level of polish and creativity and maturity that we're very rarely going to see in Latin poetry again. Mm. So what was it like translating this poetry? Very difficult. (laughs) Um, The most difficult part being deciding what to give up on. Mm. One aspect of this poetry is that it is deeply, deeply educated. Mm. For highly educated people and and expecting a high level of cultural knowledge, which your average student, let alone your average reader, does not have. Mm. So I had to make decisions early on about what to translate in the text. In other words, if Claudian left us a learned illusion, Mm. did I leave it like that? No, most often I didn't. Most often I included extra words or found a more common way of describing the person, the event, or mythological story, or the historical reference. And then, of course, I added notes and a glossary, yes. but I tried to depend on them as little as possible. People don't like looking down at the bottom of the page or the back of the book. So I relied on in-text glossing. Mm. I also um, shortened Claudian's long sentences. Mm-hmm. He likes to use all the resources of the Latin language. It's a flexible language when it comes to word order, mm-hmm. and he achieves amazing effects with that. I had to put it in comprehensible English, so that went too. So this is very much a functional Claudian designed to give you an idea of his subject, but the skill that he exercises as a user of the Latin language will have to wait for those who have studied Latin. Mm. Well, and thank you for bringing it to us in English. Um, but. His most famous work, and the one that most listeners are probably familiar with, is the one we've saved for last, and that's uh, The Rape of Proserpina. So tell us about this, and read us some if you can. In some ways, this is even harder for Claudian to do than Panagyaric, 
because this is a very, very well-known myth. Hmm. Our earliest account of this myth comes from an archaic Greek poem that's probably 900 years before Claudian. And most people may not recognize Claudian's name, but more will know the poet Ovid, the poet mm. of the Metamorphoses. He left us a very, very influential version of this story. So again, to do something new with it, to get people interested in this very, very familiar mythological story, requires a great deal of bravado on the poet's mm. part, and also a great deal of skill. Right. You'd be like rewriting Arthur in the modern day. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, one thing that Claudian has to disadvantage that the other narratives don't so much is he makes somewhat individuated characters out of the mythological people who populate the story. So there's the unfortunate young rape victim, Proserpina, mm -hmm. the spring goddess. And she has her goddess friends, Minerva, goddess of warfare, and Diana, goddess of the hunt, along with her. And she's being um, tricked by the goddess of love, Venus, who has led her to a place where she'll be vulnerable and ready for her uncle, the king of the underworld, to, uh, to kidnap her and take her down to be the queen of the dead. Mm -hmm. And this crucial moment of the poem, Claudian's version was noteworthy enough that the image I picked for the cover of my book, Rubens' account of this scene, is from Claudian's version. No other version does it quite this way. Let me read a slightly longer account of, of the rape scene from the second book of The Rape of Proserpina by Claudian. Proserpina has gone out to pick flowers with the other goddesses and left herself a victim for Dis's rape. Proserpina, Ceres' sole hope, burned hotter than the others in her eager zeal to pick the flowers. Now she wove flowers and, sorry, her osier baskets smiled as she filled them with wilderness spoils. Now she wove flowers and crowned herself, all unaware this was a fateful omen of her marriage bed. Minerva, goddess who rules war trumpets and weapons, turned to light games and relaxed her fighting hand that breaks up brave columns, and uproots strong walls and gates. Diana, whose dogs track scents on Mount Parthenius, didn't shun the dancing. She only wanted to place a wreath atop her unruly hair to hold back. While these young women's games were taking place, look! A sudden crash resounded. Towers smashed together, and cities shaken to their roots were overturned. The cause wasn't apparent. Only Venus recognized the reason for the mysterious upheaval. Though terrified, she rejoiced amid her fear. And now Dis, ruler of the dead, was seeking his way along dark tunnels beneath the earth. A hidden sapper similarly advances on an unaware enemy, tunneling under the field beneath their foundations his secret path crossing their closed guarded walls. A triumphant crowd bursts into the deceived citadel, imitating the earthborn giants. Just so, Dis, Saturn's third heir, yearned to get out under his brother Jupiter's heaven. Dis couldn't tolerate delay. 
Angrily he struck the rocks, his scepter like a battering ram. Dis's hand conquered Sicily and shattered its tough bonds. An immense chasm gaped wide, terror suddenly appeared in the sky, and the stars deserted their trusted paths. The nymphs fled. Proserpina begged the goddesses for help as the chariot swept her up. Minerva unveiled the Gorgon's face, and Diana knocked an arrow and hurried forth. They wouldn't yield to their uncle Dis. All were virgins that drove the fight, that drove them to fight, and made the fierce rapist's crime seem worse. He was like a lion who seizes a heifer, the glory of the stable and the herd. His claws tear at her guts, lay them bare, and he indulges his madness all over her limbs. He stands fast, clotted blood fouling him, and shakes the tangles from his mane, caring nothing for the shepherd's useless rage. So Claudian has taken this scene, amped it up in comparison to the earlier narratives that survived to us, and really shown us the horror of Dis's crime, raping his own beasts, through that comparison that I concluded with of a lion seizing a heifer and tearing her apart, he's shown us just how brutal this man, this god's actions have been. And the, uh, the reaction of the other goddesses to the horror of the rape, their attempt to save Proserpina, that's Claudian's innovation in the story that's been told hundreds of times before he takes it up. Well, chilling uh, and, and fascinating poetry um thank you again for making this available is there unfortunately we're up against it but is there anything else you'd like to say to the listener a potential reader well i'm grateful for the invitation and uh hope to have shown off a bit of what i find fascinating in claudian um he's one of those authors where the more you have read of the tradition preceding him, mm. the more you'll notice the games he's playing with that tradition. Right. So it's good to come to him after reading some basic Greek mythology or Roman versions of it, such as Virgil and Ovid. Mm -hmm. But he's also a great storyteller yes. and can sweep you along with his narrative, even if some of, some of the background is unfamiliar. So... Thanks again, and I uh, look forward to discussing with, with uh, you with him again. Absolutely. And if this piqued your interest, uh, this is, again, The Complete Works of Claudian by Neil W. Bernstein. Uh, it's available through Rutledge in their later Latin poetry series uh, and wherever uh, you buy such books elsewhere. Uh, thank you for listening. Have a great day. <laughs>